Hello, and welcome to another special audio interview with MLEX. I'm Madeline Hughes, the D.C.-based data privacy and security reporter for MLEX, and I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C. Today, my conversation is with Francis Haugen, the former Facebook product manager who left the company in 2021 with a treasure trove of documents from the company about how it handled misinformation and children's privacy issues. I met Haugen late last year at a conference in D.C. where we discussed how those documents have since been used to inspire lawmakers' policy proposals, and that there are now more than 40 state attorney general lawsuits and hundreds of other lawsuits filed by individuals in school districts alleging design features chosen by Facebook and Instagram allegedly harmed children. Since Haugen first came forward as the whistleblower, with thousands of documents from Facebook, she's been working to help the hold the social media company accountable through her nonprofit, Beyond the Screen, by documenting how social media companies can uphold their ethical obligations. Haugen agreed to speak with me from her home in Puerto Rico about the current regulatory landscape for social media companies and how she hopes they can evolve to do better. My conversation with Haugen begins with us going back to how it all began with her choosing to come forward and blow the whistle on Facebook. So I never intended on being uh, like a, na- a, you know, a named whistleblower. Um, part of the reason why the disclosures are so large um, is that I wanted them to be able to stand on their own. And it was really only in like the couple of months before the Wall Street Journal started publishing that my lawyers were just really, really direct with me. And they were like, you know, we respect whatever choice you make. But, but you need to not be deluding yourself about like what you are getting or not getting by being a named or non-named whistleblower. One of the classic techniques for undermining shocking information is to attribute you know nefarious motivations to the person who's sharing the information. And almost certainly, if I had um, remained not named, Facebook would have tried to erode the credibility of what what was in the disclosures by saying, you know, this is a hatchet job, like this is not representative, blah blah. blah. But I think the secondary thing is um, my lawyers had very direct experience of um, representing the Ukrainian whistleblower. So this was the person who whose records led to the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And one of the things they pointed out was, you know, when you don't take responsibility for your actions, you can actually hurt other people because one of the things that was incredibly stressful for them was the media kept attributing other people to being who the whistleblower was even though there were death threats against that person. And we never expected there would be death threats against me. Mark Zuckerberg has far fewer fanboys than say Elon Musk does, for example. Mm-hmm. Like I think if I crossed Elon, the, the Elon fanboys would have come for me, um, just yeah. as the nature of, of that, that interesting ecosystem. So we never expected that, but there is a real thing of, there's many people who could plausibly be the source and, you know, none of those people consented to having their lives turned upside down. And then, and then I think the last part was, you know, they were just really honest with me, which was as soon as Facebook sees these stories, they are going to figure out it was you. There's such a wide scope of stories. They have the records on everything that got accessed. There's only one person who looked at that scope of stuff. And so the thing that you have have um, set in motion is you are going to have to live your life with always looking over your shoulder that you know if at some point facebook decides they need to change the narrative it will introduce you to the world in the least least flattering way because let's be honest we all have warts we all can have our our actions interpreted in many different ways and they have functionally infinite amounts of money to do whatever pr campaign they want to because so they're like you have a very simple decision to make like it's not a question of like 
are you going to stay behind the scenes or not? It's this question of like, are you going to take responsibility? Because, you know, Facebook can put a face to your actions at any point they want to. Um, only they're going to do it in a way that erodes the credibility of the documents and um, potentially causes a lot of chaos in the process. So Meta as a software company has these individualized experiences. People are seeing different things on their Instagram feeds and Facebook feeds. And can you explain how that played into your need to show the documents, showing those different experiences? So for credit for listeners, um, one of the, the big things I, I walk through in my book is, you know, people will ask me, why are there no Apple whistleblowers? Like, go, go type into Google, like Apple whistleblower. You have to go back quite a number of years before you have a major whistleblower that you know, made a news cycle. And and part of the reason for that is there's very, very little incentive for people in the tangible economy to lie about what they're doing. You know, in the tangible economy, I can go buy an iPhone. You know, I can put out a YouTube video where I take apart that iPhone. These things exist. Like within hours of a new iPhone being released to consumers, there are videos that can t- completely take apart these phones and show you, yes, this part's there, yes, this part's there. You know, people run benchmark tests. You can lie, but like you're going to get caught and in the case of Facebook, and I, I think the thing that has been, it, it, it has actually been a real struggle for me um, uh, since the unredacted Facebook complaint came out. So for context mm-hmm. for people who hopefully don't cover the trials and tribulations of the Meta legal department as closely as I do, yeah. a large number of attorney generals, so I think at this point the count might be up to 42, if you include District mm-hmm. of Columbia, um, have sued the Meta Corporation for context when big tobacco was sued. Initially, only 40 came forward. So, like, we're already ahead of the curve compared to big tobacco. Um, I say, and they, the, that filing, like the major one, so 32 states had a single mm-hmm. case together, then a bunch of other states had their own individual ones. The unredacted version of that document came out on the day before Thanksgiving this year, yeah. 2023, for those of you who listened to this long in the future. And the thing that's been hard for me is it is shocking how craven some of the people, particularly Mark Zuckerberg, were in terms mm-hmm. of dealing with issues around the safety of children. I think for context for people, you know, I, I tried really, really hard in the book to, to explain from like an organizational lens, like from a, a management theory lens, how mm-hmm. choices Facebook has made has made it harder for them to do, you know, quote, the right thing. I think there is another lens that I didn't dig into as much because like, you know, I don't I don't know, Mark, like I didn't I didn't want to attribute anything to him that, you know, I didn't have receipts on. But like reading through the unredacted lawsuit, you have a company that was founded by a bunch of teenagers 20 years ago. Those teenagers have never had other jobs. (laughs) They've been frozen as 18 year olds and, and they've been told that their product hurts children. Right. Like that's that's an almost impossible thought for a person to think. And and yeah. right now, what I think the difference between like, say, Apple and Meta, like why you are seeing these just like like uh, I think Arturo Behar's testimony to the Senate a couple mm-hmm. weeks, uh, you know, a month ago was so groundbreaking because no one could imagine that, you know, uh, a smart Harvard educated, you know, has all the resources and backing old executive could be so nonchalant about issues like imagine your whole exec team comes to you and says, hey, we currently have filters on Instagram, which is used by a bunch of 10 year olds that allow Mm -hmm. you to simulate getting plastic surgery. We should get rid of those. 
and like you literally uh, kneecap your executives and are like, eh, there's market demand. Like we're not going to do anything. If Apple did something that was similarly dramatic, like let's say they're using child labor, mm -hmm. right? We have laws for the tangible economy where we say, hey, you just don't get to hide stuff like that. And we are living in an inflection point where we're having as a as a world to say, you know, the tangible economy and the intangible economy have different constraints. We are mm -hmm. going to need to figure out different ways of incentivizing good behavior because we have seen very clearly that it doesn't happen automatically on its own. In your book, you talk about the, quote, false choice between the freedom of speech and safety. Um, the First Amendment has proven to be an incredible force for social media companies fighting regulatory efforts to this day. How should we be finding balance in that? I'll give you an example. Like, they should have to publicly report, like, this is what our current investment is in catching information operations. Or, or there's there's very minimal things like, for example, um, you know, if we came in and said, hey, you know, we can't actually even understand. Are you doing a good job if we can't see your most viewed content? Right. Mm -hmm. A post that is seen by 10,000 people is not private anymore. Like we should come in and say more than 5000 views, more than 10,000 views. If something is seen more than 10,000 times in the United States, it goes into a feed every day and academics journalists can analyze it. And, and to give a sense to, to listeners out there um, why this is so important, you know, when I say 30 or 35 times more Palestinian content got produced than Israeli content, no one gets to find that out, right? Like this is a, a stat that gets hidden. My team, when I was at Facebook, got shifted off of how do we deal with misinformation that causes ethnic violence, you know, places like African countries, Southeast Asia. We got shifted off that work because they caught an information operation on Facebook that was sending targeted misinformation to police officers. Like when I say this is a national security issue, the idea that you could send messages to currently enlisted military people, currently serving police officers, like people with guns saying, hey, the world is very different than you think it is. We should be really scared and we should be demanding more. And, and to be clear there, transparency doesn't say you have to do X, Y, Z. But it gives people like advertisers a choice on whether or not they want to support that system. It gives individuals a choice of like, do I want to use this product or do I want to use that product? Because, for example, you know, we completely shifted how trans fats. So trans fats, if people remember, mm -hmm. very small amounts of them uh, significantly increase your coronary heart disease risk. It's very hard to buy products now that have trans fats in them. And it's because we passed regulations that said you have to put it on your label. People have the right to know what they put in their mouths. People should have the right to know what they put in their minds. And right now we have been told, well, it's free. You should just be grateful. And that is not acceptable when a handful of companies control the vast majority of our information ecosystem. And what are you hopeful for in your work globally? So I, I actually care about working outside the United States a lot more than I, I focus inside the United States. Partially, that's because um, I think uh, the voices outside the U.S. get very, very little bandwidth, right? Because it, it is one of these things where all these companies are American companies and a lot of the worst costs are actually happening outside of the U.S. I'm cautiously optimistic they're going to table their online safety bill this year. And I think what will be interesting about that is it will give us a chance to start having a conversation around like there are modes of changing the power imbalance 
in social media that aren't about telling companies how to operate themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So the kind of state of the art right now is around this idea of doing risk assessments, where, you know, it, it, it's very hard when you're trying to figure out how to govern software of saying this is allowed and this isn't allowed because it's an intangible product. You know, it's it's almost like saying, you know, you're holding a dance off. What dance moves are allowed? How do you even describe a dance move? Right. Like if I move my foot a little bit different, is it the same? Is it close enough? Like, how do we do this? And historically, like if you go in with that kind of lens, it can work for things like privacy, right? So privacy, you're saying kind of a binary. It's like, do you have the data? Do you not have the data? Did you do this with the data? Did you not do this with the data? But instead, imagine a world where you said, we need you to be honest about what you're doing to cache information operations. Like if you you had only, you know, 20, 20 threat investigators back in when I left the company, Facebook claims they have hundreds. I would love to see what, what those job titles are, like if they're including the person who like answers emails in the support queue, you know, is that person a threat researcher? You had a very small number of people. If you had given them two more software engineers, they would have probably had 10 times as much impact. Mm-hmm. Doesn't the world start to know that? And, and, and so modern laws like the Digital Services Act and the European Union say, hey, unless we, the public, have the right to say, what are you actually doing? You're not going to do enough. And and I think a secondary thing is, um, so Arturo Behar was the the most recent high-profile whistleblower. That's the judiciary person. He's delightful. Yes. He had a line in his t- testimony that I thought was spot on, which was, you know, a, a critical part of what he did. And I want to be really clear. He did one of the most courageous actions for our democracy, I think, anyone has done in 20 years. Right. Which is he watched what Facebook was saying publicly when I came forward. He saw that that was not how the company was behaving internally. He collected the information to demonstrate that that was happening. And then he made sure it was available so that when it got subpoenaed, it was there. And he did a very simple thing. He asked children, you know, he asked girls under the age of 16, have you had an unwanted you know, sexual communication in the last seven days? So the last week. And one in eight girls said yes, right? Think about that for a second. You know, these are not 18-year-olds. These are not 19-year-olds. These are 12, these are 13-year-olds. Arturo said very cleanly, he said, as long as Facebook has to report its quarterly profit and loss numbers, but does not have to report how many girls said in the last seven days, I had an unwanted sexual communication. If they don't have to report that number, that number will not go down. And so I'm very against laws that prohibit certain kinds of content. I just don't think they work. Like that was another core part of my my Senate testimony was the idea that AI is just not very good at figuring out what you're saying. You know, it can kind of fake it, but it doesn't really know. It's not going to know for a long time. Uh, even then, humans don't agree. So why would computers be better at this? But what we can do is say there's a lot of different ways to solve a problem. So, for example, in the case of those those women, a huge fraction of the people who are sending lewd photos to 14-year-old girls are the same people who do it over and over again. Like there's there's things we can go in there and say, hey, we notice you have a pattern of behavior. Would you like a timeout for a week? Would you like to apologize? Or, or just like we'll start letting the young women publish your name if you're going to send them lewd photos, right? There's a lot of ways you can deal with this where it's not the government going in and saying, hey, you, we're, we're, we're going to police exactly how you're going to operate. We should be letting tech companies figure out how to drive that number down, but we should probably be requiring them to report it because that only unleashes innovation. It allows the free market 
get to start figuring out solutions because consumers can say, oh, I, I get to choose what systems my kids on. I want my kids to be on the one where not most, you know, one in eight 14 year old girls is saying someone sent them a lewd photo. That was Frances Haugen, a Facebook product manager turned whistleblower, speaking to me from Puerto Rico. Now, Haugen's Beyond the Screen nonprofit is working with litigators, academics, concerned citizens, and others to build an ecosystem that can hold social media companies accountable. They want people who use social media to know the options they have for engaging in online discourse, and they want platforms to know the variety of steps they could take to cultivate the type of communities they want. That's all for this special MLX audio interview. The program was produced by James Panicki with the assistance of Nikki Busamari. From me, Madeline Hughes, an MLX data privacy and security reporter in Washington, D.C., and everyone here at MLX, thank you for your company. Bye.